0: The I am statements of Jesus. Uh, we've been looking at those passages in John's Gospel where Jesus describes himself with phrases, I am. I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection of the life, I am the door, and so on and so on. Therefore, the working title of our series is called I Am defines who I am. God, that's so good. Let's hear it there. Um <laughs> Ready for this? I mean, we just have to keep kind of this on our soul. Um, like a good neighbor, state farm is there. Okay, so, <laughs> ready? Uh, um, like a good savior, oh, I am the my air. Thank you, that's the best one I've ever had. Oh, man. So if you're singing that in the shower, it's my fault. Guilty as charged, okay? So... Okay. Maybe I just want to sing really poorly on a recording. So that's really what we're doing. This is like my Michael Jackson fantasy. So let's move on. Okay. (laughs) So um, seriously though, like why we're looking at why we titled that rough title. What we're looking at this semester is we're trying to capture that knowing Jesus, the I am, changes who we are. Knowing Jesus the I am changes who we are. That's really what we're trying to capture, all kidding aside. Uh, And in order to to know Jesus, we're convinced here at RUF that we need to listen to what he says about himself in the scripture and the Bible. And so whether you're still kicking the tires of the Bible and you're uh, kind of maybe test driving it still, or maybe uh, the the scripture is your daily commute, no matter where you are, it's helpful to investigate your skepticism or test and approve your faith. And that's kind of what we're here to do uh, on a weekly basis. That's what we're here to do tonight. Uh, but before we go ahead and look at the scripture and do just what I was talking about, I'd like to take us back a moment. We're getting, I mean, we're almost in the semester, people. I mean, I don't, again, you don't need to tear up over there, but, um, I don't know if I was talking to you, but over there. Um, but, you know, way back when we talked about God revealing himself as Yahweh, uh, he's the Hebrew title Yahweh, which means uh, in the Hebrew literally, I am. Uh, I would put that in all caps, but I'm not the translator. Uh, and after that, we began a series of I am statements. I am the Messiah. We did that one. We did, I am the bread of life. I did, we did, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And then we did, I am the way and the truth and the life last week. And this week, we're doing, I am the vine. So let's take a look at how Jesus describes himself as a vine. Uh, would you turn with me in your Bible, if you have one, or your pamphlet, with uh, jig. to uh, chapters 15 verses 1 through 13 15, 1 through 13 of uh, John, of course uh, would you stand up for reading the scripture? would be great. okay, thank you John chapter 15 verses 1 through Thirteen. And if you're looking for it in your Bible, just look for like long, 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 long paragraphs of red. Okay. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, He pr- uh, that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. Greater love has no other than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Friends, these are the words of God. And they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they are sweeter than honey, even honey and Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we're grateful for this time. Uh, I pray that you'd make us even more thankful. I pray that this would be an exercise in abiding, and that we, as we unpack what that even means... I pray that you would help us to feel what that means and to know what that means and to experience what that means. I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us, little branches, connect to the vine of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would teach us um, through this beautiful metaphor, through this beautiful passage, what it means to to know Jesus more deeply and to be known by Jesus more deeply. Lift up your son, suspend on that cross for our salvation um, richly so that we might savor him, and that we might know that he's good, and that we might feel rested and changed as a result of this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. Okay. So, as you guys, like most of you know, I like to sit down over lunch and coffee. You mostly will see me in Corbett or Barnes & Noble. And while everybody is very different, individuals are very different, all the students, all the people I meet with are very different, you and I and everyone else basically are the same too. Okay? And here's my proof. We all want to know the answers to the same questions. Okay? Like it just takes a couple of one-on-ones, uh, a moment of honesty when the coffee's cooled and the waffle fries have been eaten, okay? to know that an honest moment happens. And it's amazing, I find you all, I find students, um, and I think this is attested by your relationships, when you sit down with someone honestly, we all find people mouthing almost the same words, the same things, the same questions that I wrestle with personally. And they're very basic. How do I make all my right head answers fall into my heart and into my life? How do I make all the head things I know actually mean something At a heart level. In other words, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith in God? Again, very basic, but very difficult. Also, I hear a related question a lot how do I stop doing the things I don't want to do? And how do I start doing the things that I want to do? In other words, how do I change? Okay, So what what does it mean to believe, and how do I change? Those are sort of questions that I hear a lot, and that I ask myself quite a bit. And wonderfully, the Bible engages those exact same questions, the questions that we're all asking, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, And this passage tonight, for instance, uh, John 15, is a great example of that. But unless you're a master gardener, or you work at a vineyard, uh, you're a vine dresser, you, the passage probably doesn't feel like it's that great of an answer to those questions. Uh, but John 15 is actually speaking into our struggles with belief and our struggles with change. I owe this insight to another REF minister, uh, a guy named Les Newsom, and so I might as well steal his illustration while I'm at it, too. So let's go with that one. All right. Look, you've all been to a hospital at one time or another, right? Okay? Maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was a friend, but you've been in a hospital. And you know that within two minutes of being in a hospital, that you someone gets an IV stuck in their arm. Doesn't that just happen? Like, you could be there for like a cold, like you stubbed your tail, they're like, get the IV, get the IV. They tap your wrist, they get the veins going, they get the needle in, they put the needle into your veins, and then they start pumping that good-for-you juice into your bloodline. Okay? And, all, and like it 's such a good for you juice that it has its own like rolling coat rack <laughs> extension stand thing that you can kind of wheel around if you need to um, I mean we don 't all have that i 'm just saying like that 's like all of us owning a personal segway i, I don 't i mean that's that 's amazing anyway so let 's move back through and focus okay The point of the i v is actually uh, that you're getting life-giving, nourishing fluids. That's why they're giving it to you. And without an IV, some people would actually die. I think about like a year, a year ago or so. My daughter Carol got really sick with a stomach flu and got dehydrated. And if she didn't have an IV in the hospital, she might very well have died. Um, or think about what it was like, what it would be like to, to exchange the good-for-you fluids of an IV with a bad-for-you fluid, like say motor oil. Okay, that person would die who was receiving motor oil out of an IV. And hopefully some people would be fired. Um, there's a sense in which uh, all of us are built with this kind of spiritual dependence at a spiritual level. We have a need for fluids. Okay. For some of us, this need is really obvious. Just like it's a real obvious thing when we feel sick and we don't know how and rest isn't working that we need to go to the hospital or to the doctor. But for others of us, this need, the spiritual need, is not obvious. And it's like those relatives that you have that have uncle or that parent that refuses to ever see the doctor about anything because they're always fine. But all of us have this spiritual IV hookup inside of us, inside of our hearts. And that's why we all have these kind of questions. And maybe you wouldn't put it like what does it look like to believe or what does it look like to change? But really a lot of our lives are looking for people and places and things to hook ourselves up to to hook our spiritual bodies, our hearts, up to, to find our meaning and our security and our significance. So two questions emerge from this image of human spirituality that I'm borrowing heavily from Les Newsom. First, how does spirit, the spiritual IV work? How does it work? What's going on with that mechanism inside of us? That is, how does faith work? How does belief Change who we are and what we do. Okay, so how does faith work? How does cha- belief change who we are and what we do? Second, what bag of fluids are we hooking our hearts up to? Okay, who or what are we worshiping? Who or what are we believing in for life to give us life good for us fluids? And we see these two questions beautifully addressed. And wrestled with and answered in our passage tonight, which is amazing. First, in verses four through thirteen, notice I'm going in reverse order. Uh, Jesus tells us how the spiritual IVs of our hearts, our faith, works. Okay? Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. And that's how we produce the fruit of change. Second, verses one through three, we see that Jesus challenges us to hook our hearts up to God, to Him. Jesus is the true vine, and God is the vine dresser, the master gardener. And that's how we get life. The meaning and the security and the significance that we all crave is hooking our hearts up to Jesus, spiritually speaking. Verses 4 through 13 tell us faith produces change. And verses 1 through 3 tell us God produces life. Okay, it's that easy. Verses 1 through 3 Faith produces change, versus, oh, sorry, verses 4 through 13. i Just see the reverse order. That's going to be tricky. Okay. Verses 4 through 13, we see that faith produces change, verses 1 through 3, God produces life. Okay? Um, so we're going to start again, as I've said a couple of times, from the ending, um, and then we're going to end in the beginning. Okay? So we're going a little bit out of order, but I think it'll help us because I think there's a natural flow that we're jumping into in John 15. If we've been reading through John 14, et cetera, we would get a better idea of it. Okay. Let's look at verses 4 through 13. Okay. It's a lot to look at once, but if you kind of skim it with me, you'll notice there are two related thoughts. Okay. The two related thoughts are this What does it mean to abide? Have we ever seen one man use a word so many times? Okay. Abide, abide this, abide that, abide in me, abide in that. Okay. There's lots of abiding going on. And then second, what does it mean that we are branches in Jesus is the vine? And these are two related ideas, because Jesus is using a metaphor, that is, we're branches that need to cling to him, that, are, that find meaning in him and his vine, to explain, to give a picture, to give a word picture of what it means to abide. Just look at verse 4 with me, I'm going to read it, I think it will help you to understand what he's trying to say. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Sadly, that is a beautiful metaphor that is, is lost on absolutely most of us. Okay, Most of us don't work in a vineyard. Most of us are not familiar with vineyards. Uh, we're not around our everyday locations. I know southern New Mexico is trying very hard to have a, a, a wine scene, Okay, but <laughs> Look, that's just not our daily reality. And that's why I try to use that hospital IV image, because it's a very similar imagery there about abiding. Abiding is Jesus' way of speaking what it looks like to have faith. What faith looks like is abiding. Faith in Jesus looks like hooking up our heart to Christ, to Jesus. Okay? Faith looks like abiding, remaining, living, dwelling in Jesus. Those are all definitions of the same Greek word. But this probably still feels like maybe a little mystical, maybe a little poetic to some of you who are engineers. And you're sitting there and saying, look, Sid, give me something practicable. Not just practical, practical, practicable. Give me something that I can do with this. So let me give you a more technical definition that might help you a little bit, okay? It's from Leslie Newbegin. To abide in Jesus is the continually renewed decision... Okay? To abide in Jesus is the continually renewed decision that what has been done once and for all by Jesus, by the action of Jesus, that is his life and death. So it's a continually renewed decision that what Jesus has done in his life and death shall be the basis, the starting point, and the context of all of my thinking, deciding, and doing. Now, I'm really going to unpack that because it's super complicated. Okay, But let's just unpack it really briefly. What Numigan means is that faith in Jesus, that is abiding, is gazing at Jesus. It's gazing at Jesus. It's a decision, an action of the will. And it's a decision that requires constant refreshing, continual renewal. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, we've got to decide to look to Jesus. To look for Jesus. To look at Jesus. And it's a continual decision to make Jesus the basis, the starting point, and the context of everything that I am. That is all my thinking, all of my deciding, and all of my doing. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Okay, It's really important. And this looks like, I'm going to be very practical here, practicable here. This looks like bringing our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions to places where Jesus promises to show up. Places where he promises that we can see him in his fullness. Scriptures, the Bible, prayer, helping the poor, and church. You see, there's a personal and individual aspect in seeing Jesus, but there's also a community aspect in abiding in Jesus. I think us in the West, not just the West as in like the Western part of the world, not just us in the sense of uh, the West in terms of Western America, but we're absolutely individualistic. So it's hard for us to grasp this that there's a community aspect to abiding in Jesus. I love the way that, it, that Tom Wright puts it. Okay? He says it this way There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. We can't go it alone. That's so true. And you know what that is? That's really actually very encouraging and not discouraging. Here's why. When you have trouble like I have trouble, I know I'm a professional Christian, but when you have trouble like I have trouble praying or reading the Bible, this is encouraging us to go and ask for help, to go and seek somebody out and get the encouragement and the feedback and maybe the accountability or whatever else it is to go and read the scripture and to go and pray. Sometimes things are done well together that help us to do things better apart. Does that make sense? That's how sometimes we need someone else to point us to Jesus so that we can see him afresh. But we have to address what abiding, not just what it is, but what it isn't. If abiding is finding ways to look at Jesus, abiding is not. Abiding faith is not looking at ourselves. Okay? It's looking at Jesus, not looking at ourselves. And this is where I need to discuss this other word that John drops a lot in, in Jesus' discourse here, where Jesus is saying this over and over and over again. He's saying fruit a bunch of times. In the Bible, fruit refers both to character and to actions. Okay? Character and deeds. What warms our hearts, that is character, and what our hands and feet find themselves doing, that is actions. So the, it's referring to both of those things. Galatians chapter 6 lists the fruit of the spirit. Those are character things and some of you can list those off with your eyes closed standing on one foot spinning around. Okay? Patience, peace, love, etc., etc., etc. Okay? I'm not going to do that for you. You can look it up. Okay? Abiding in Jesus produces a certain kind of character, a heart-swelling sentiment, a, a heart-swelling way of being. Okay? But also, verses 7 and then 10 through 13 tell us that the fruit produced by an abiding love of Jesus looks like action. So it's not just character, it's also action. That's why we read that whole passage. Because he's saying over and over again, it looks like two things. Prayer and obedience. Prayer and obedience. Okay? An obedience that's summed up for us, for the faithful, in verses 12 and 13. Okay? Okay? Love others as Jesus has loved us. Love others as Jesus has loved us. You know, just lay your life down for other people. Starting with your friends and moving out to your enemies. You go, go ahead, live and die for other people. Love people perfectly like Jesus. WWJD? It's that ridiculously difficult. You should feel uncomfortable for a second. I should feel uncomfortable for a second. If we're honest at all about our relationships, we're getting a little bit nervous Okay, when we look at that standard. Right? That's crazy. We're thinking, I'm not very Christian productive. Have you looked at my fruit count recently? I'm sure I'm about to be cut off. I can't keep commandments like this, abiding in Jesus' love. Therefore, Jesus can't really love me. Deep down inside, I'm just about like one second from the chop block. But that's defining what it means to abide in faith by looking at ourselves. Do you get that? That's that's defining what it means to abide in faith by looking at ourselves. You see, verses 6 and 10 are not telling us that fruit leads to abiding, they're saying the opposite that a faith, belief, leads to fruit. The branches don't bring grapes to get in with Jesus, okay, the vine do say, hey, let's, let's hook up now because I've got a bunch of grapes. Okay, That's not how it works. It's the opposite. Jesus grows grapes through the branches. Those, those people who cling to him. That's how we change. That's how we glorify God by our change. We become more like Jesus. Emotionally and socially laying our lives down by connecting, by connecting our hearts and our faith to God, to Jesus. All we have to do is to continue to believe that Jesus and his love works this way. Okay? I love that hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's something that we should probably meditate on all the time. Especially because you and I are always taking a fruit count. Okay? Okay? How am I doing? Am I doing okay? Am I a Christian? Does God love me? Look, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's why verse 7, for instance, can promise that whatever we wish will come true. Okay, Like all of a sudden, Jesus is a genie in a bottle. Okay, Just got to rub him the right way. That's not necessarily what the passage is saying. And I want you to hear this for a second. Because it's not because... Jesus, not, it's not because we bring Jesus such amazing prayers on our own. It's not like we're like using incredible words, like deep theological words, and our, our sentences are really, really long, and, and everything in us is just oozing conviction. Okay? That's not why our prayers are effective. Okay? It's not wisdom or even piety on our part our prayers are answered by Jesus because our prayers begin to sound like His prayers. Okay, Abiding in Jesus lets His words stew in our hearts. Faith in Jesus changes the way that we pray because we become more like Christ so the desires of our hearts and the words of our lips become more and more like the desires of Jesus' heart and the words on His lips to the Father. Okay. Let me just sum this up with a really, uh, maybe weird at first, contrast, but maybe ultimately helpful, I hope. okay. Jesus doesn't want us to be Christmas trees. okay. Jesus doesn't want us to be Christmas trees. He wants us to fall in love with him. Let me explain what that means. No one knows what I'm talking about. That's awesome. That's what I was hoping for. Okay. Look, think about a Christmas tree. I'm not talking about the fake one. I'm talking about the ones that you go and you hack down, and it's, and it's, a, it's a small little sapling pine. You've cut it down with your bare hands, or your parents have, and you feel good about it. Um, and, you know, in December, and on the outside, this tree uh, is beautiful. It's green. It smells fresh. There are sentimental ornaments on it. I mean, the tinsel is going all over the place, and it's looking pretty. Okay. You've got some great lights, and the lights are, are warming up your house and your heart, you're feeling very good about this Christmas tree. okay? There's a lot of external fruits, in other words, in this tree. It's covered in success and it smells like piety. Okay? But think about what happens in January to the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree, the outside matches finally the decayed inside. It's no longer green but brown. And all the sentimental ornaments and the beautiful tinsel and the, the wonderful lights are starting to droop, if not fall, with all of the needles that are falling on your floor and getting everywhere. You see, the tree died the minute you cut it up from the trunk. The, way the tree died the minute you took it away from the vine. Do you get that? So it doesn't matter how beautifully decorated our lives are with good works, whether we smile and we're optimistic, whether we're going out of our way to be polite and nice... Those are really important things and beautiful things, but if we're not connected to Jesus, we can't have those true and deep relationship with Jesus. Our life, those works will fall apart and they'll fail and fall to the ground. okay? Niceness will fail, I know, hard to believe. But we have to be connected to Jesus in order to really relate to him, to have a deep and true relationship. Our fruits cannot give us that. The things we do cannot give us that. All the pious tinsel and the lovely ornaments on the outside will fail. All the other, and to be honest, all the things that we do to be nice and polite, they won't even give us what we really want, which is other people and their intimacy and their affection at a true and deep level. Okay? They won't do this outside of a relationship with Jesus. I'm not sitting there and saying, don't be nice, don't be polite. What I'm saying is that a real relationship with Jesus leads to fruit. A real relationship with Jesus leads to piety and joy and love. Just like falling in love with someone leads you to actually serve that person well and to love that person thoroughly. Okay, if you've ever fallen in love with someone, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and again, it could be romantic. It probably is primarily romantic, but it could be a parent that you've started to really appreciate a lot recently. Okay, but let me use my life as an example. I fell in love with my wife, Tear. Okay, don't, we don't need to get the Kleenex out yet, okay? And you know, when I fell in love with her, no one had to encourage me to spend lots of time with her. Okay? No one had to sit there and say, Sid, you know what you need to do now? You need to go and spend some time with Tear. That's really going to be helpful. Okay? They didn't, I didn't have friends coaching me to, have, to talk about deep, meaningful things. They didn't have to sit there and say, look in her eyes. Buy her stuff. Do her dishes. They didn't have to sit there and say that. You know? I didn't need some moral improvement seminar with a bunch of romantic, step-by-step principles. I didn't need to go to some seminar with easy-to-remember rules that all start with like the letters of the alphabet in a row. I still don't need those things seven and a half years later. Not that a marriage seminar is wrong, but rules and principles are not what's going to help me. What I need to do to love her well is to remember why I love her. To gaze at her and appreciate what's lovely about her. What Jesus is doing inside of her. What Jesus is doing through her. Gazing at Tear and loving Tear makes me want what she wants. Gazing and loving Tear well makes me, being captivated by her, makes me actually, we speak the same language. Literally, if we're not in the same room, we will ask the same person the same questions twice. Okay? Two are becoming one there. And that's just not love in terms of a romantic sense. That's a lowercase L. Capital L is the relationship that all of us have with Jesus. Whether it started just now or you've been at it for seven years plus, okay? All of us have that relationship and what it needs to be what it needs to, what, it, what produces fruit is not a seminar on rules and regulations. It's gazing at Jesus and finding what's lovely about him. Loving what's lovely about him. Fixating on his loveliness, not fixating on us loving him. Just like the minute I start fixating on how I'm loving tears, the minute I'm missing the point of my marriage. Just like in our relationship with Jesus, we need to fixate on his loveliness and not the way we're loving him. Okay? This is why G.C. G- uh, Berkouer uh, could summarize Christianity in one sentence, summarize all of Christianity in one sentence, because it's this simple and this difficult. The essence of Christianity of Christian theology is grace. The essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. The, ath- the essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. In other words, we need to fix the eyes of our hearts on Jesus' grace, and we will boldly, foolishly go out and love people out of gratitude. For Jesus. But, look, and we're winding down, what does grace exactly look like? The language of the spiritual IV is, here's the question, who is it that we're hooking our hearts up to? Right? Verses 1 through 3 tell us that Jesus is the source of spiritual, moral, and emotional life of significant security and worthwhileness. And does and Jesus explains that he is this way by saying something incredibly profound, but what, that we don't catch at first. He says, I'm the true Vine. I'm the true Vine. His audience, in that context, the eleven disciples gather around him in the upper room where he was doing the first communion they understood that immediately because they knew the Old Testament well. They knew that was referring to Isaiah 5. They knew that was referring to Psalm 80. In fact, they knew that what Jesus was saying there was referring back to our early reading of Psalm 80. Remember, in that Psalm, I don't know if you remember it, but Israel is being compared to a vine, right? Okay, He's, it's, She's brought out out of Egypt and planted in Canaan. But that vine goes wayward. It's a bad vine. Uh, It doesn't grow well, and it's preyed upon by a lot of different factors in its environment. And so the psalmist is crying out. He's crying out to God. He's begging God to send his son, to send the son of man. And what does the son of man promise? The son of man will not be bad. He will not turn from God. The son of man will give people life. The son of man will restore people's, the people of God, Israel's relationship with God. Do you know where we're going? The Son of Man will be the true vine, that the, the vine of the people of God we can never be. That Jesus Christ replaces us, his perfect love for our faulty love, his goodness for our badness, okay? His... Our falseness for His trueness—it's beautiful to see the way that this, this psalm works into the passage. What Jesus is saying by "I am the true Vine," is He's saying I'm everything that you weren't to God, and you get everything that I am, and not what you are. Okay? He doesn't fail. He loves perfectly even unto death, and the cross exchanges those things for us. He gives us life, relationship with God. Us who believe, us who were unlovely and evil, us who are faithless moment by moment. Jesus, the true vine, died for us. Not so that we could feel bad for him. Poor Jesus, he died. That's sad. No, so that he could switch. So he could give his loveliness, his goodness, and his truth to us. In the words of verse 3, you're clean. That's how it says it. You're clean. All of that in a verse. It's beautiful. And guess what, guys? You're tired. All you have to do is rest. That's it. Just rest. Rest in that historical fact of Jesus. We don't have to do something difficult to get Jesus. There's not some labor that he sets up for us. We get to live as if Jesus really did all this for us. That's all it requires. And by the way, that's what grace means grace is this we did nothing, we did nothing but we get Jesus' everything. We did nothing, but we get Jesus' everything. And grace is what changes us, and it's what changes the world. And I love the way that this passage works. The segue is this. How does grace change us? All of a sudden, our view of God changes. And that's why right after Jesus says, I am the true vine, he says, God is the vine dresser. God's the vine dresser. What does he mean by that? What he means is that God is a master gardener who prunes those bearing fruit, those people connected spiritually to Jesus, in order that they might produce more fruit. Okay? He helps us grow as human beings. That's another way of saying that. As God makes us more like Jesus through life's difficult circumstances, and this is probably the hardest part of the passage, this one few, few little verses. God makes us more like Jesus. He chisels away ourself to make us more like Jesus through difficult circumstances. We learn to love God. We learn to love other people graciously. Those people who are unlovely sitting next to us, sitting near us in class, living next to us in the dorms, in our family homes. We learn how to love those people through personal suffering. That's a really hard teaching. Okay, It's mysterious and difficult. And we could be encouraged that God came for us. He loves us that fiercely. In the words of one commentator, the vine dresser God is never closer to the vine us. Taking more thought over its finished product, its long-term health, its productivity, than when he has the knife in his hand. That's hard to believe when you fail in a class that you studied hard for. When the girl you like doesn't like you back, when you can't find a job, or personally when your baby girl daughter is throwing up half the night again. It can be small things like school or big things like cancer, but clinging to God's grace looks like believing that he's in control and he's using these bad things for our good. But I think this idea of God as a spiritual surgeon is still very difficult, especially in the weariness that we all feel this time of the year. Especially the frustrations that are mounting in personal relationships in school. And so let me do this. Let me give you an example, and I'll end on this, of an extreme pain and extreme gladness. A way that God the surgeon operates in an extreme way. A way that I hope none of us face. Okay. Let me give you this example. Does anyone know who Alexander Solzhenitsyn is? Okay. He's a Russian. Okay, he's a Russian writer whose famous memoirs the memoir's about him being captured in Stalinist Russia and being put into a gulag, which is a prison in Siberia. Okay? Doesn't get much worse. He's convicted of a political crime that he didn't commit. He's not communist enough. He's actually communist, but he's not communist enough. They throw him into prison, and he said that he's supposed to labor until death in the cold, bitter winter of Siberia. Of course, he doesn't die because he writes the memoir, but this extreme moment of suffering shapes who he is. After seven years of pointless, back-breaking, bitterly cold prison labor, Solzhenitsyn has the impossible happen to him. He gets a malignant tumor. He gets cancer in Siberia, in the prison camp. And there he is, getting treated for his cancer, laying on a bed, getting some reprieve from the cold, and the guy right next to him, the doctor, the prison doctor, takes a hammer and whacks the guy's head open right in front of him and kills him. And so he starts to interrogate his life, just like all of us would. Seven years into a prison camp, the person bleeding next to you to death. And here's what he says. He asks a few hard questions about suffering. Yet it is the innocent who are punished most zealously. And what would one have to say about our torturers? Why does fate not punish the people who are the prison guards? Why do they prosper? And then his thoughts turn towards God. The only solution to this would be that meaning of earthly existence lies not as we've grown used to thinking and prospering, but in the development of the soul. Let me hear that again. It's very complicated. The meaning of earthly existence lies not as we've grown used to in prospering, but in the development of the soul. From that point of view, torturers have been punished most horribly of all. They are turning into swine. They are departing downward from humanity. Then listen to Solzhenitsyn's later prison reflections. Post-prison, he's gotten out of prison. He's looking back at that time. And listen to the gratitude that he has. It's unbelievable. It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience. How a human being becomes evil and how a human being becomes good. In the intoxication of youthful, youthful success, I felt myself infallible, and so I was cruel. It was only when I lay there on the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Only on the rotting prison straw does he actually feel what it's like to be good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil, the line separating good and evil, does not pass through states or classes of people. Or political ideologies. It passes right through every human heart. Through all human hearts. Now listen to this. You won't even believe what he's about to say. It's unbelievable. That's why I turn back to my years of imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those around me, read often, all the time, bless you, prison. Prison. Bless you, prison. I've served enough time there. I've nourished my soul there. And I say without hesitation, Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Did you hear what Solzhenitsyn just wrote? About false imprisonment, about death by a labor sentence, about cancer, about rotting straw? He blessed them. He blessed them all for making his soul bigger and for making him good. Only a Christian who believes in grace and trusts God's care, only faith can say something that sounds so foolish but is so truly holy. God has so changed Solzhenitsyn. He's so changed, faith has so changed his perspective on God and the way the world works that he views prison And pain, not as something to endure, but as a blessing to cherish. This only goes to show that God won't give up on you. He won't give up on me. He goes to the greatest lengths, whether it's prison or cancer or prison, rotting prison straw, to change us for the better. And that can scare you. That's okay. It scares the bejeebies out of me. Okay. But I also want you to hear this. God produces fruit through branches, through his branches, even if those branches are in snowy Siberia. God produces fruit through branches, his branches, even if the branches are in snowy Siberia. Prepare you pray with me? Father, um, there's a lot to take in here. Um, it's difficult to grasp what you're doing through things like vine pruning Um, I'm thankful Father that you've made the way of entry not how hard I can work or how uh, much I produce but you've made it through your son Jesus and the work that he's done for us and the production that we can't possibly measure I pray Father that you'd help us all to rest a little to, to, to make a work of rest almost to think about what it looks like to gaze upon you to not get distracted with ourselves um, I pray, Father, that fruit would feel much more organic, fruit would feel like following you, and following you would look like not looking at our feet, but looking at where you're going. I pray, Father, for those things in our life. I pray for your work and our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.